Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here as we begin to wind up another week in Biden's America. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I'm at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Send me a note. Let me know what's on your mind. I love hearing from you guys as always. All right. Coming up in the weeks ahead here on the show, uh, next week, we're going to have some laughs with a phenomenal comedian named Ami Kozak, who I discovered on Instagram. So when he is super famous and has his own sitcom, I am going to claim total responsibility for his fame. He is really funny. He's going to join us next week because again, uh, if we don't laugh in America today, we cry. And just like there's no crying in baseball, there is no crying on the Monica Crowley podcast. All right. So we're going to have some laughs next week, lighten things up a little bit. Also, we're going to be joined by the phenomenal Congresswoman, Anna Paulina Luna. She is going to join us with the latest from Capitol Hill. Also, further down the pike, we're going to talk to Liz Wheeler. Uh, about the communists targeting our children. We're also going to talk to the phenomenal actor John Schneider. Duke's a hazard. Bo Duke is going to join us. We have a number of really big guests uh, in the hopper coming up, teed up. We're going to talk to Victoria Sparts. We're going to talk to Matt Gates. We're going to talk to Alveda King. We, we're just, we have so many phenomenal guests lined up. I can't wait. I can't wait to talk to them. And I can't wait for you guys to listen and to hear what they have to say, because our interviews here on this show are really quite unique. You get stuff here on this program you will not get anywhere else. Um, the kind of raw conversations that we have here are really, really valuable uh, for you guys and for the future of our country. So I'm always happy to have you on board, and I look forward to having you join us in the days and weeks ahead. All right, first up here today, the Monica Memo. There is Donald Trump, and then there is everyone else. With every passing Republican debate, that just becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. Uh, Look, the people on the stage last night at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, uh, they're all nice people. They're all relatively solid conservatives, but none of them seem to understand what hour it is in America. None of them seem to understand how late the hour is in this country. Or if they do and they're not talking about it, that's even worse than being ignorant about how late the hour is. This debate was a carnival of tedious cliches. The consultant and and poll-driven answers... I mean, they're all running like it's 1994. They're all like throwbacks to to a simpler age. Even though we have been under assault by the communists for decades, at least like in the 90s, you know, maybe a simpler time. 
but the hour now is very late. We are at the tipping point in this country, and none of these candidates either get it or seem willing to talk about it. I mean, where is the conversation about the weaponization of government? Where is it? I mean, you don't hear from any of these people. Vivek Ramaswamy is the exception to the rule. I will say that. And I like him. I consider him a friend. I've been on his podcast. He's been on this one. I like him so much. And he seems to understand and and at least be able to articulate where we are in this country and the weaponization of government and how it's all key. But the others either don't understand it or are too afraid to really articulate it in a serious way. And you, you cannot be a serious candidate and not talk about that core issue because w- without that, we have no country. None of these other issues that they were talking about last night, and again, they're all important issues, education, the border, uh, taxes, uh, the economy, inflation, gas prices, all incredibly important, guys. I get it. But if you're not talking about the core issue, which is the, the Marxist assault on this country, the fact we are at the tipping point, the weaponization of government, I mean... For God's sakes, just this week, we had another egregious example of this with this crazy left-wing judge in New York sticking it to Donald Trump and ordering the dissolution of the Trump organization. Donald Trump's entire life's work before he ran for president, one judge without a jury ordered the dissolution of the whole thing. Now, obviously, Trump and his family are going to appeal this, and it's, it's uh, you know, it may go up to the Supreme Court, who knows, likely to be overturned because it is madness beyond any, uh, and, and Trump's lawyers have no idea what to do. Nobody knows because it's so unprecedented. You have a liberal Democrat judge who is actually a registered Democrat, has done work with the ACLU. I mean, way out there. You take one look at this judge. I think I retweeted somebody who had a photo of him. I mean, guys, he is like out of central casting for radical communists in New York. So just this week, we have this egregious, outrageous example of the weaponization of our institutions, of our government, of the judiciary, the targeting of a political opponent. And and the, the candidates on the stage are like, uh, Donald Trump's too scared to join us on stage. I mean, every time Chris Christie hits Trump, and that is his only mission in this race, is to hit Donald Trump Every time he did it, I was like, drink. Chris Christie hits Trump, drink. Well, you can expect after this left-wing maniac uh, did this to Trump and his life's work, his company this week, you can expect Trump's numbers to go up another three to five points. He's already leading all of his Republican uh, contenders by 
I don't know, 40, 50, 60 points, depending on the poll. And now when you do a general election matchup with Biden, uh, on Tuesday here, we talked about the ABC News, Washington Post poll showing Trump up by 10. You've got other polls showing him tied or leading Biden now. Biden hemorrhaging support from core constituencies like black voters, Hispanic voters, women, younger voters. So, you know, they're all like, Trump is scared. <laughs> Trump hasn't been scared of anything in his entire life. Nothing. He is certainly not afraid of Chris Christie or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, okay? Or Mike Pence. He, he is just not. And you know what he was doing last night instead of standing on the stage with the Keebler elves, as Steve Bannon calls them? He was in Michigan giving a barn burner of a talk to the United Auto Workers. He had a massive crowd in Michigan, and he proved once again that he is the president of the working class. He is the blue-collar billionaire who cares more about the average worker than he does about the big-money donors, the establishment. That's who he is. That's who he has always been, more comfortable with the workers on his construction sites than he ever was with the four people on those sites. And so he gave a barn burner of a talk. He shook hands with these auto workers and he pledged to them that he will continue and always fight for them the way he did before he entered politics, the way he did four years as president. And they went wild for him because they get it, because he is authentic, unlike the Republican candidates on stage last night. Vivek Ramaswamy accepted. But that kind of raw authenticity coming from Donald Trump, that's why all of these these cliches coming out of the mouths of all of these other candidates fall flat because we have had Donald Trump. And his authentic nature, is he smooth all the time? Of course not. But that's what we want now because the country is on fire. In fact, in a couple of minutes, and I've been remiss uh, in in saying what's coming up here today, we're going to have a really important conversation with Yunomi Park, who is a North Korean defector and Boy, does she have some things to say, some warnings for all of us about the march of communism through our institutions and how what, what a desperate moment this is for this country. She lived communism in both North Korea and China. And she's like, what are y'all doing? Exactly. So is Donald Trump the smoothest uh, guy? No. But that is exactly what we need in this moment. We need somebody who sees it clearly and can articulate it and is willing to fight. That's what we need. We don't need like any more slick willies, spewing cliches, running like it's 1994. We are done with that. And you know what nobody seems to get in the Republican establishment and the propaganda press is that the Republican base will no longer select a Jeb Bush, a Mitt Romney, a John McCain, that's over. So all of these people on the stage last night gassing around about this issue or that issue, again, you know, with this, the, the consultant written lines for them, 
Chris Christie talking about, oh, Donald Duck. I mean, cringe beyond. Cringe beyond. So Trump, um, for his part, actually, you know what? Let's roll Vivek Ramaswamy because, again, he is the exception to the rule. Uh, Vivek opened up the debate last night with a terrific statement about Biden's disastrous economic policies. Listen. You know what, if I was giving advice to those workers, I would say go picket in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. That's really where the protest needs to be. Disastrous economic policies that have driven up prices, that have driven up interest rates and mortgage rates. At the same time, wages remaining stagnant. What we need is to deliver economic growth in this country. Unlock American energy. Drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear energy. Put people back to work by no longer paying them more money to stay at home, stabilize the U.S. dollar itself, and rescind a majority of those unconstitutional federal regulations that are hampering our economy. That is how we unleash American exceptionalism. And that's not a Democratic vision or a Republican vision. That is an American vision that we embrace economic growth, and capitalism is still the best system known to man to lift us up from poverty, and we should not apologize for it. That's what it means to be an American. American. Well, good for Vivek. A very strong opening statement from him. And this is the kind of stuff that they all need to be talking about. I, I am on Larry Kudlow's show all the time. And we talk about this on the air all the time on his radio show, on his Fox business show. These people need to be talking about, number one, the weaponization of government. Number two, uh, showing the voters that they understand the nature of the internal enemy and how they're going to fight it, and how they're going to turn this country around, and just as importantly, present a pro-growth economic agenda. So go after Joe Biden and the disaster of Bidenomics, which is what Vivek did, which is fantastic. But, you know, again, why is he pretty much the only one? It's like Matt Gates, pretty much the only one standing up to the, these unbelievable uh, bills that keep coming up on government spending and they, the establishment wants another omnibus. Matt Gates is a hero of the republic standing up saying no. And there are others that are joining him like Matt Rosendale and there are others who are fighting back against this, Lauren Boebert and others. But we're talking about a handful of Republicans. Why is Vivek pretty much the only one making these kinds of statements? Ron DeSantis has a great economic record in Florida and he touched on it last night, but where is the passion? Where's the fight? Where's the drive? I sat down to watch this debate last night. I wanted to enjoy it. I wanted to get something out of it. I had a yellow legal pad. I had my Twitter feed ready to go. I think I tweeted once or twice in the whole thing. And nothing went on my yellow legal pad. Because it was, I was like, what, what, where is the meat and potatoes? What is going on? These people have not met the moment. Donald Trump met the moment in 2016. These other candidates, again, the one exception is Vivek, but they are not, as a general rule, meeting the moment. And the Republican base sees it so clearly, they get it, and they're done. They're done. This is why Trump is leading by 
40, 50, 60 points. Speaking of Trump, yesterday, last night, while the debate was going on, he was in Michigan. So for all of these losers on the debate stage going, well, where's Trump? He is too scared to be here. Uh, he's missing in action. That That is something that Governor DeSantis said. I like Governor DeSantis. The best Republican governor since Reagan in California, okay? But whoever gave him that line, uh, clueless. He's like, Donald Trump's missing in action. I was like, oh my God, I wanted to tear my hair out. No, Trump is not missing in action. He was in Michigan talking to the UAW uh, workers, bonding with them, telling them how much he was going to fight for them. That's what he was doing last night. Let's roll. uh, The first clip I want to roll is of Trump last night talking about Joe Biden's corruption. Listen. But it was the men and women who got every single day. They got up and came back home with grease on their hands. And they were the ones that paid the price. They paid a big, big price. The only time Joe Biden has ever gotten his hands dirty is when he's taking cash from foreign countries, which is quite often, actually. It's quite often. Yeah, exactly. And guys, By the way, speaking of Biden's corruption, um, we have heard now from the House Oversight Committee led by James Comer, who has been phenomenal, um, that in 2019, okay, so we're not talking about when Biden is vice president and all of that corruption. 2019, Chinese nationals wired over a quarter of a million dollars to Hunter at Joe Biden's Delaware home address. Keep in mind that Joe Biden has repeatedly denied that he knew about any of Hunter's international business deals, and he specifically said that he never spoke to Hunter about any of his Chinese business deals, right? And yet, big Chinese money went directly to Hunter at Joe's address. Check out the timeline. On April 25th, 2019, Joe Biden announces his campaign for president. On July 26, 2019, just three months after he announces, the first of the Chinese payments gets wired to Hunter at Joe's address, $15,000. Oh, Monica, that's not much money. Okay. On August 2nd, 2019, just one week later, more from the same Chinese nationals came into Hunter at Joe's address. Just take a moment and imagine, if you will, if this were Donald J. Trump, and a few months after announcing for president, Don Jr. gets a wire from Chinese nationals for a quarter of a million dollars to an address at Trump Tower. Just imagine that. Now you can see the hierarchy clearly. This is not hypocrisy. It is obvious corruption. It's obvious bribery. And frankly, in my view, it's obvious treason. But it is not hypocrisy. It is hierarchy. It's hierarchy. It's the elites versus everybody else. We also got a report that uh, the investigators into the Hunter Biden uh, array of crimes were blocked by the U.S. attorney, Leslie Wolf, not allowed 
to move forward investigating Hunter into Joe Biden. So the investigators not allowed to investigate. What a joke. Meanwhile, last night, here is Trump again, talking to the UAW workers, talking to the folks in Michigan, talking to the people in the heartland. He is saying, you matter. You built this country. You matter, and I see you. We love being with you, and we love being with you right in your environment. You built this country. You love this country, and you are the ones that make our country run. You know that, right? This is the key to Trump's appeal. I mean, he's got many keys to his appeal. But going back to 2015, 2016, why he took off, why he has been able to sustain this absolute affection and love is because he talks directly to the forgotten men and women in this country. And he says something really important. He says, I see you. I hear you. And I will be your champion. In 2016, the forgotten men and women heard that and they said, I hope he's not bullshitting us like every other Republican politician and frankly, every other Democrat politician. I hope he's not bullshitting us. So they took a leap of faith and they elected him. And then he spent four years delivering for them. He never has let them down and they know it. And this is why they cannot wait to vote for him again. The forgotten men and women of this country built this country, as he just said, and will save this country. But they need him back in the White House, back in leadership in order to accomplish it. So I don't know these other uh, Republican candidates. I mean, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody wants to hear Chris Christie bloviating and slamming into Trump. Nobody wants to hear this carnival of tedious cliches. Nobody wants to see these people are clearly not up to the moment. So what are they doing? Are they running for vice president? I, I don't see, I mean, apart from Vivek, maybe, I don't see any of these people being on Trump's dance card. Uh, being in a Trump cabinet, mm, maybe maybe Vivek, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I can't see. I can't see any of the others. Maybe I'm wrong, but I can't see it. Are they running for higher speakers' fees? Maybe. But frankly, all of these people at this point should just suspend their campaigns and get firmly behind Donald Trump. That's it. Um, Over the weekend, we are going to keep a close eye on a potential government shutdown. Uh, As I mentioned, Matt Gaetz leading the charge. Thank God for him. He's a real hero. The Senate sent over uh, to yesterday, they sent over a bill, um, which is dead on arrival in the House. And one of the big reasons why, well, there's no cuts in spending whatsoever. It's a continuing resolution and it's just another massive spending bill, uh, short term through November 17th. But again, dead on arrival. One of the huge reasons why, um, no money for the border and 6 billion in supplemental funding for Ukraine. So 6 billion more on top of the, what, 150 billion that we've already sent there. And I got from a very good source that the corruption in Ukraine is out of control. It's almost as bad as here. 
Okay. And that's saying something that is just a giant slush fund. All of this money is just sloshing around. Everybody has their hand in the till. It it is disgusting. And so the Senate, with a bunch of Republicans who voted yay, including McConnell, a couple of surprises, Chuck Grassley, um, there are others. I mean, a a ton of them voted for uh, this. A big surprise, Marco Rubio. There are a bunch, 19 Senate Republicans voted against it, voted against more money for Ukraine. They're all heroes. Ron Johnson, Marshall Blackburn, uh, Roger Marshall, who's been a guest on this show, Rand Paul, Eric Schmidt, who's been a guest, Tommy Tuberville, another guest, J.D. Vance, another guest. Uh, they're all heroes here. Um, and so we'll, we'll see where this goes. Gates and the conservatives are pushing for 12 standalone independent subject spending bills so that the spending can be targeted and you know what's in every bill rather than these massive omnibus bills. Doesn't look like they're, they're closer. So we will keep a close eye on this all weekend long for sure. All right, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to, you know, me park who has a real cautionary tale for the rest of us survived North Korea, survived China, came to South Korea and then to the United States. And she is horrified by what she sees is a very important message. And every American should hear it. She's up next. Well, I have a particularly special treat for you guys today. As you all know, I have been studying, observing, writing about, and speaking about communism for a very long time. It's also been, I've also been out there warning about communist infiltration and the communist takeover of the United States for a very long time. And for years, my warnings were met with scoffs and dismissal and even mockery. Oh, Monica, you're crazy. Communism in America? Forget it. Well, not anymore, because more and more Americans are waking up to the fact that the communists are almost finished with their nearly century-long long march through our institutions and our culture, and that they now control everything from our government to our education system to big tech to our culture. They control it all. We are waking up to it very late, but better late than too late or never. Today, we're going to hear from a singularly important voice, someone who has lived under the dark jackboot of communism and has come to the United States to warn us. You know, me Park is a defector from North Korea. She is also the host of Voice of North Korea on YouTube, and she is the author of two books. The most recent one just published is called While Time Remains, a North Korean defector's search for freedom in America. She joins us now. You know me, welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, well, it is wonderful to have you here, and I, I appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness as you address all of these issues, which really are the, the issues of our time here in the United States, but also around the world. And as I said to you before we got started, I'm a longtime admirer of your message. I'll never forget the first time I saw you on TV. I thought, who is this beautiful, slip 
of a woman who is speaking so passionately about communism, uh, both abroad, but also the encroaching threat of full communist control here in the United States. And that's how I became acquainted with you. And so I'm really happy that we have finally connected. Oh, thank you so much. I'm truly honored for that. Well, it is true. And I have been looking forward to uh, talking with you for quite some time. So I'm glad that you're here. We have a lot to discuss, but I'd like to begin with your personal story because it is quite a journey for a young woman and you are very young and you've lived, you've lived several lifetimes already and you're wise beyond your years. You were born in North Korea and you lived there until you fled to China at the age of 13. Everybody needs to know that North Korea has been under the same communist family dictatorship since 1948. And North Korea is known as the most repressive and isolated nation on earth. Tell us, if you would, about your experience being born in and growing up in North Korea. What is that country like? Oh, I know this. Often I really have a struggle to describe what it is like to live in North Korea because in a way it's almost living a different planet. The norms of the modern modern world, like being in America or South Korea, doesn't apply. Uh, regime divided people into 51 different castes, even though we were the nation founded upon the ideology of complete equality of outcomes. The regime divided us into different castes based on our ancestors' crime. So basically, it's like in America currently how they're dividing people into your race, your skin color. North Korea did that. Uh, if your great-great-grandparents owned the land, then land ownership was evil. And they say, oh, therefore now, when I was born, I was in the lower caste because my great-great-grandfather apparently owned a tiny bit of land. And therefore, I was marked as my blood was tainted in the system. And then with this division, the country makes everybody turn against each other. So they plant spies literally everywhere, even in the classroom. We have to look for faults in our classmates. And even in the daily life, we don't even have the word for friendship. We have comrade. And being comrade with somebody and being friends with somebody is very different because when you are a comrade, you exist to serve the nation, the party's order, not to be two human beings and being friends with each other. So in a way, North Korea is a perfect real example of Georgia versus 1984. It really is. I mean, Orwell is becoming more and more true to life with every passing day. And, and it's long been true for countries like North Korea uh, Cuba, Venezuela, others, the, the old Soviet Union, but it is now alighting here in the United States. Although the process to change the United States into a communist-controlled uh, nation has been going on for a long time, and we will certainly talk about that. What is, you know, you describe, you know me, um, the, the, the family members turning on each other, 
they, everybody is an informant in a country mm-hmm. like North Korea. There, there is obviously no rule of law, no due process, no freedom. And everybody, because it's such a secretive state and there, it, it is a con- controlled by a surveillance operation, controlled by the state, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are being watched, you have no privacy on top of no freedom. Mm-hmm. What is the day-to-day life like in North Korea? We hear in the West all kinds of stories about uh, just the struggles for basic survival, getting food, getting shelter, getting water, getting basic life necessities to live because everything is so scarce. Yeah, so those resources like com- strictly controlled by the regime and they decide who gets fed and who don't. And usually this decision comes from the party based on upon your royalty to the government. And private enterprises like market system or trading is banned. And the government controls complete means of production. So basically, government's using a starvation, this scarcity as a tool to control people. So the, if you, uh, I don't know if you read the Hunger Games, it's exactly like that. The government divided people into there's a capital and other districts. And the, the districts that were far from capital, they don't get food. And all these people need to be every second worrying about their survivor and finding food. And that's how they want us to get distracted and not thinking about our reality day to day. If a population is starving, they cannot, and, and disarmed, nobody in North Korea or any communist dictatorship is allowed to have a personal weapon like a gun to fight back. So if you are starving and if you are disarmed, you have no recourse against the government. You are a slave. You are a pawn to the state. Is that right? Yep. So right, the first thing the communists did was taking the, all the arms away from North Korean people. And yes. they said that in the name of public safety, you know, in, in the socialist paradise, nobody needs guns because the government's there to protect us. So with that promise, North Korean people gave up all their arms and defense. But after that, now we have no, no way to fight back. We are, first of all, starving. Literally, when I was a child, I had to eat plants, you know, tree barks, dragonflies, grasshoppers. That was my day-to-day of surviving. And even grasshopper is like a fancy meal in North Korea. And then, of course, we don't even have a mobility to do that because within North Korea, there is no freedom of movement. So... A North Korean cannot visit Pyongyang if they don't have the government permit to visit there. So revolution is literally impossible. There's no communication tool for the people. There's no internet. There's no way of exchanging information because there's only one channel on TV. And people are starving. And on top of that, we are not even allowed to move around. So information doesn't like spread inside the country like in America right now. No freedom of speech, no Second Amendment, right to bear arms, no freedom of movement, eating bugs and grass and tree bark sounds a lot like what the globalist communists uh, have in store for us through the World Economic Forum and other globalist entities. And we are going to get to that, you know me, I promise. But Mm -hmm. I want to stay on North Korea and the communist system. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of people in America just assume with the end of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, communism went away. That is not true. 
as I always say, communism never dies. It just gets rebranded. And now we're seeing a massive rebranding of communism, and it's seducing a lot of the younger generation. Before we get on to that, um, the faith aspect of communism, particularly in North Korea, all communist regimes ban God. They ban organized religion. Why? They do not want you having faith in a higher power. They want you worshiping the state because the state is everything. It's your family. It's your education. It's your community. It's your work. It is your God. And so without having any kind of faith or any kind of wor- any kind of um, religion apart from the state, what does that do to people? Doesn't it really break down the human spirit? I think it, that is a very interesting aspect of, of living in communist country. They, like you said, in North Korea is the worst country to be in as a Christian. They punish the Christians the worst. Recently, North Korea regime uh, sent two-year-old to a concentration camp. And we would wonder, like, what possibly two-year-old do to go to concentration camp? The reason is that the parents of this child own the Bible. So if you own the Bible or read the Bible, if you ever practice religion, the three to eight generations of your family gets punished in the harshest way. Uh, the, in a way that North Korean regime became, like, killed God and became God themselves, they literally copied the Bible and brainwashed North Koreans in a way like God was Kim Il-sung. He loved us so much. He gave us his son, Kim Jong-il, and his body dies, but his spirit is alive with us for the rest of our lives. And when we die, we join him in a socialist paradise. So if there is a real presence of true God, they get exposed. They they know people are going to know that they are fake. That's why I think they really go after Christianity, you know, you know, in a way that is never seen anywhere else. But like you said, right, like they really want us to worship the dictators like gods. And that's why in North Korea, people think Kim's are gods. And that's what I believed up until when I escaped to freedom. Yeah, you know, it's it's the state needs to be worshipped. But because, and that's communist theory coming out of Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, the state needs to be worshipped. Uh, because it is your entire life and identity. There, There is no individual freedom. There is no individualism. It's all about the collective. So therefore, the state is what you are supposed to worship. But human nature being what it is, human beings tend toward power. They love exercising power over other individuals. So what happens in communist states is exactly what happened in North Korea, which is you get a cult of personality for mm-hmm. the, the dictator. Massive posters and everybody on the ground and dear leader and the rest of it, right? They turn the leader into the religious icon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's precisely that's why they have to ban other religion. They cannot have any competition when it comes to faith. And that's why it seems like when we look at North Koreans, when the dictator dies, they cry hysterically. And often the rest of the world does not understand how these people were brainwashed, even when they were in their mother's stomach. That's how we were brainwashed and forced to believe that they're gods. And And then individuals become nothing. There's no individual... Uh, dignity or freedom, nothing good about being an individual. You only matter when you are part of this collective. 
that serves the leader and that serves the party. And that is my my teacher told me since I was young, they say, you know, your father, the biological father doesn't matter. Your real father is your our dear leader. And if you see your, what your father say something bad or not royal, come to tell us and school. So we believe that the most important in life is the party and not family, not your parents, not God, nothing else matters. It's really stunning the way you phrase that, you know, me, which was um, that the state tells you the dictator is your father, because in Christianity in particular, it's God is your father, right? You're, you have an earthly father, your biological mm-hmm. father, but God is above everything and he is your paramount father. And that's mm-hmm. how communism twists uh, the faith so that all of your faith is in the dictator, in the, in the state. Can you tell us, um, you know me, how the North Korean regime uses force to keep its citizens in line? The police, the secret police, the military and the surveillance state, it's all working together to make sure nobody steps out of line. Yeah, it's uh, exactly like that. (laughs) People cannot own any force or weaponry, but the governments can, and they use it against their own citizens. It's in a way that uh, other nations have army to defend the nation from other nations' attack. Right, but North Korean army literally exists to protect the one leader from the entire population. The army doesn't exist to defend people or keep the sovereignty in the nation, but they want to make sure that if there's a revolution, this army can care within inside. Uh, army, police, secret service all work as a big organ that only serves one man. And they are willing to go any length to punish people if the people do not obey the leader and the party line. So, you know, the public executions are the mandatory for North Korean people to attend. Even toddlers must attend. If literally when we have to go see the public executions, the, the, the you know, orders were like, if you are short and child, you sit in the front. And then if you're a tall adult, they put you in the back. So since you're a child, you see this terror and you know the consequences, what happens if you do not obey. And that's how like, the regime does not teach us the concept of human, human rights. We don't know the concept of it. So people don't even know. We just think that's a norm. That's like how the world operates. Communist regimes like Pyongyang disappear people, they jail people, they sentence people to hard labor, and they kill people, mm-hmm. as you know me just said, in public executions, which are which are their punishments, but they're also messaging events for the rest of the population. Don't even think about it. Don't even dare think about stepping out of line or this could happen to you. And again, we're seeing this encroachment here in the U.S. And I want to ask you, Nomi, about that as well. But let's continue with your personal journey. So as you say, the people in North Korea don't know what they don't know. They mm-hmm. don't have television. They don't have radio. They don't have except the, the state run media, which is all propaganda. 
which sounds familiar <laughs> to hear too. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they certainly don't have internet. So they, they don't know what they don't know. When you were growing up in North Korea, did you have any sense of the United States? Were you being propagandized that the United States was an evil empire? Did, where, did you learn about it at all? Yeah, so like that, uh, when I was in North Korea, actually, I've never even seen the map of the world. Uh, but they did teach us about Americans. And we had lots of posters at school. Uh, as you said, like we don't have internet. There's no way we can Google if what the government's saying is true. The only posters that I saw of Americans were, this looks like a reptile, monstrous, evil uh, creatures were piercing our children, taking teeth out of our women, and laughing at torturing, burning our people. So they literally teach us as young age saying that Americans are, I mean, literally we cannot even say Americans, it's too polite. We have to say American bastards. It's like one word for North Korean people. And they tell us they are our sworn enemy. And these American bastards were trying to attack us and they have attacked us. And how fortunate that we are that we have our dear leader who is so brave and so, so amazing, we're keeping us safe from American invasion. So every second there's this like the urgency of war happening by America attacking us. And every second that we need to be grateful that we were safe inside the country because of our dear leader were defending us and keeping us safe with all the sacrifices and making. So that was a like, government narrative. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say fear is any government's most effective weapon. So Mm -hmm. as you're hearing, you know, me describe how the North Korean regime uses fear to keep its people down. Um, Our own government has used fear in so many ways. Um, And most recently with the the COVID uh, pandemic, using fear to control. Um, You know me, so at, at the age of 13, you fled for uh, China and you you entered China. How did that come about? And what was your sense of China when you got there? Was China not much better than North Korea? What was your life like there? It's uh, the only reason why we escaped initially was that we did not even know what the world was out there looking like waiting for us. We just. I saw the lights coming from Chinese side at nighttime. And if you see the satellite picture of North Korea at nighttime, it's literally the darkest place. We don't even have electricity in the 21st century. And I was starving and we thought if we go where the lights were, we could find a bottle of rice. And with that simple you know, curiosity, we crossed the frozen Yellow River into China Uh, My sister escaped first, a few days before me, and then my mother and I followed her. But as soon as we got to China, the first thing that I witnessed was that my mom being uh, raped. And then Chinese human traffickers caught us and they sold us as sex slaves in China. Within China? Yes. So within China, I was there for two years. going to different places. And then eventually I was rescued by South Korean Christian missionaries. Uh, And then they told us how to escape, which meant that we had to walk across frozen Gobi Desert into Mongolia from China when I was 15 in 2009. 
So you were sold into sex slavery in China from the ages of 13 to 15? Yeah. Wow. So this is where the things that people don't often know about North Korean Chinese relationship. Uh, China, in a way, CCP runs North Korea. They really yes. run the biggest concentration camp in the whole human history. North Korea is a big, gigantic concentration camp that captured 25 million human beings. And when we escape, we are automatically defectors because when you escape, you are defined the party, the leader. So we are political refugees in the in the international law. So China signed the for Geneva Convention. They have to respect this uh, convention and they have to help North Korean people. And it's, it's the thing about North Korean people is that we are the only nation that have a nation to want to accept us. That is our, our South Korean brothers and sisters. China, all they have to do is not catching us. They can just let us go through China but they don't even do that. They catch us and they actively send us back to North Korea because that's what North Korean demanded of them. So it's like catching the Jews and sending them to our streets. Uh, because of that, we are very vulnerable and human traffickers know that even though they rape us, kill us, do anything to us, we cannot go to police and ask for help because police are the ones that want to kill us. We have to run away from the authority in China. And because of that, there are right now currently 300,000 North Korean women are currently are sold like livestock and, uh, and Chinese regime like this because, because of one child policy, they are lacking more than 33 million women currently to marry this excessive men. Right. When, during the one child policy, so many families couldn't have multiple kids. They had to choose one, which meant that killing a lot of girls and kept the boys. But these boys right now, these men cannot find wives because there's not enough women to go by. So now the Chinese government is afraid that there's going to be cool by this angry single man in China who cannot find jobs, who can't even find wives. So what Chinese government thought was that, oh, if they get these North Korean women as sex slaves, at least they're going to be contented on some level. So that's why they they are perpetrating this human, human rights crime. Yes, it's stunning that you have survived so much. Um, and in particular, that, that those two years of your life when you were in sex slavery in a foreign country uh, in China with no recourse whatsoever. I mean, God bless you, you know me, for for going through particularly that period of time, but the entire journey. So at that point, you're rescued by missionaries and you are taken to a freer country. You're taken to South Korea. What mm -hmm. what was that like for you? Because between North Korea and China, you have never known freedom. You have mm -hmm. never known any sense of capitalism and abundance. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, at the age of, what, 15, 16, you yeah. find yourself yeah. in South Korea. Was that a culture shock for you? It was. It, <laughs> I was utterly, utterly, uh, you know, shocked that actually being free was not that easy. Thinking for yourself is not that easy. Yes. For the first time in South Korea, I had to learn what freedom meant. And... For me, as a North Korean, when I thought freedom was initially was like, you know, wearing jeans, 
watching TV, watching movie that you want to watch. Because in North Korea, even wearing jeans, they send you prison camp because they say that jeans were made in America is a symbol of capitalism. Individuals have no right to even choose their own haircut, right? Government tells us what music to listen to, what book to read, what haircut to have. What movie to watch? How to even dance with your own body? Like there's no autonomy whatsoever within your, your yourself. You literally don't own yourself in North Korea. Now I go to South Korea. I was suddenly free. I could do whatever I wanted. But then that was also scary because even though I made bad choices, let's say I was not being responsible and not developing myself, I had to be responsible for the consequences. Unlike North Korea, there were no consequences, right? Because the choices were not made by us. So learning freedom was very painful. And I struggled in the few years of time. And eventually, I read a lot of books and finally understood what freedom was. And then it became much easier. Freedom is hard work. Mm Self-government is hard work. Because I think human nature tends to being lazy, and we all are (laughs) at various (laughs) times. We're we're all lazy. And I think the instinct is to foist off that hard work onto someone else. And that's why authoritarian forms of government have a lot of appeal, um, Mm -hmm. because people just want someone else to make the decisions for them. Because as you say, the responsibility weighs very heavy on people mm-hmm. for the consequences of their actions, but that is the price for freedom. Um, so you, so then you, you uh, achieve some measure of success in South Korea on television, mm-hmm. which is yep. a very inter- <laughs> interesting path. And then you decide to leave South Korea and come to the United States. Why? Yeah, so I was in a university uh, studying criminal justice, and then I was accidentally got onto a TV show because initially I lost my own sister, and then producers were told me that South Korean TV shows are watched widely, especially in China, and maybe my sister might see me and find me. Uh, I didn't find my sister after seven years of separation, and then with that I came to America because... I mean, this is a promised land. I mean, we all know that the America is the best country in human history. And I wanted to be part of that and have my own American dream. So I came to America in 20, end of 14 to to write my first book. And I began studying at Columbia University in 2016 as a transfer student. I will share with you, you know me, that you and I share Columbia University as alma maters. So I know uh, you got your, yes, you got your bachelor's degree there. And I yeah. have two master's degrees and a PhD from Columbia. So excellent choice. Very good school, <laughs> but very liberal. <laughs> so what did you think? What did you think when you're at university and you're up in, in uh, the north part of New York City, you're at Columbia University, you have fled North Korea, you have fled China to get away from repression and communism, and then you end up at Columbia and you're surrounded by communists? I mean, that's the thing. Like In a way, I got very unlucky because I began my study at Columbia after Trump won the presidency. So in a way that people were like hysteric. <laughs> especially in Manhattan, where the most woke liberal people who live in. 
And you can imagine what it was like on campus at Columbia. And I think because of that, I was witnessing that the professors were teaching the same things that North Korean teachers were teaching us in the, in the classroom. And I was so confused. Like, did I go back to North Korea or something? Why Colombia is so anti-America, anti-freedom, anti-capitalist, like that exact same thing that North Korean uh, teachers teach North Korean people to hate, right? You hate capitalism, you hate America, you hate free market, and you feed, you hate democracy. And all the same element was there. And that's really when I got scared that America was on the same path to become like North Korea. It's it's pure madness, and it must have been absolutely shocking for you to see that at Columbia and New York City and elsewhere in America. I mean, I, I guess that's when you decided to begin to speak out about what you were seeing about the dangers of communism taking control here in the forms of wokeness and political correctness, but also like straight up communism especially in a university environment, but now it's everywhere. Yeah, it's for me being there for four years really woke me up to the to the degree how far this nation gone in this path. It's not about just like, oh, we are questioning our current system. Their actual goal, they say, is literally the tearing down the Constitution and dismantling American system that was built upon the idea of free market. And they say we have to rebuild America in the name of equity, which meant the collectivism and North Korean model of equity. So that's when I knew like, oh, there is a communist revolution began in the nation and especially all these elite institutions like, like what you said, education institutions and big tech. I started making contents on YouTube and social media platforms to expose CCP and their relationship to North Korean dictatorship. And those videos were getting constantly getting blocked and demonetized. So I was like, even like wrote to Google at one point, like that was like the time of me too. Like you guys are supporting me too in America, but why are you not supporting women who are raped in communist countries? And they just simply say, oh, it just does not meet our guidelines. Mm. And that's what, when I found out how severely these institutions were biased towards people who were like me, who were questioning communism and collectivism. There are, there's the overarching uh, ideology of Marxism, and then there mm -hmm. are different strains of it. So you've got economic Marxism, which is a command mm -hmm. economy with uh, the government, as you say, controlling the means of production with mm -hmm. ever tighter control. There is political Marxism with communists controlling most of our government and our institutions now here in the U.S. And there is cultural Marxism, where the Marxists control the culture, movies, television, music, and then it expresses itself in other ways, like the transgender agenda. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the motivation for all of it is, yes, it's the communist ideology, of course, but behind even that is absolute power and control. That yeah. is the end game of Marxism, is it not? 
Yeah, it is. It's disguise, right? Is even climate change. Right. They want to solve the climate change by making us be all poor and helpless. So it is. It's it's complete disguise, and no no communism began with the idea of say we're gonna be all poor. And you're gonna have no rights. They North Korean regime came to North Korean people, promising us that isn't it an injustice that we have to pay for our basic survival like education, healthcare, housing, food. You know, it's unjust that capitalists are so greedy that we have to pay for these basic services like education, healthcare. If that we we abolish capitalism, we abolish private property, the government's gonna make sure that everybody gets a great education, great healthcare, great housing, great food, and we are going to be all living in a perfectly equal society in a paradise. Now, in this Marxist talking about how healthcare is a human right, that it should be free, how education is a human right, it should be free, like. Everything, the environment, this comes from this Marxism, and they don't understand that nothing is free in the world. Actually, nothing is free. It always comes with a price tag. And under yeah. communism, the price tag is the loss of your freedom, all of your rights, your liberty, and and the rest of what goes along with a free society, capitalism, free market economics, uh, beautiful goods and services, all gone. Because you are a slave then to the state, and it is enforced by the use of force, as you say. Now it's enforced by a twenty-four-seven surveillance state, and uh, you know, I, do you think because we have so much of it here, and it is so clear to you, having lived it before in China and North Korea, why do you think so many Americans are blind to it? I think first of all. A lot of most of Americans were like they never left this country. They really have no clue how good they have. They have no idea being an American is like winning the biggest lottery of your life, right? In human history, you're being in America in the 21st century, especially, is the luckiest of luck that you can ever win in life. And so, because they don't understand it, they want to destroy it. And then these professors, I do think they were also genuinely brainwashed since they were young in this public school system, even some private schools. They were brainwashed their own professors that think that capitalism is evil and perfect paradise is actually possible if we implement socialism better this time. Do another approach; it can work, right? They always say it wasn't implemented correctly. Right. We didn't try in a right way. It's always same argument, and I do think it's a genuine brainwashing that happened at some point in America. That this generation of these academics and uh, even tech, tech or media, Hollywood, all these institutions were brainwashed, and then there was a real evil behind it. The people perfectly understanding how bad actual real communism is, and saying these things because they want to make a profit, like. Big corporations were talking about how BLM and America is systemically racist because they somehow thought that would drive their sale and make more profit out of it by dividing American people. So there are like real people who are so evil, understanding what's happening and taking advantage of this confusion and division. But then there are also massive amount of people that I saw at Columbia were genuinely, genuinely indoctrinated to think that paradise. 
is possible, that complete quality of outcomes is possible if you just try one more time. If you just try one more time, leave it to us. This time we'll get it right. Yes, we have heard that argument so many times. And of course, throughout history, every communist regime makes that argument. And it's never true because human nature (laughs) is what it is. So the vanguard, as Karl Marx wrote, there will be a vanguard, meaning a group of elites that will bring the society to through socialism to full communism. And then in Marxist theory, once full communism is achieved and everyone is equal and there is the collective, then the vanguard is supposed to, in Marx's words, wither away and the people mm-hmm. are supposed to govern themselves. But because human beings love power, the vanguard never withers away. So you end up with these incredibly corrupt, abusive communist regimes like in North Korea, like in China, that keep the people down to keep themselves enriched and in power. That's just been the lesson of history. And that is what we're in the process of happening right here in the United States. We are very far down this road and most of the American people just don't see it. Yeah, it is. It is really down far this road. I've never, one day I was robbed in Chicago in the down, like middle of during the daytime in downtown. I was robbed by a few black women. And then people were literally circling me and calling me a racist that I was trying to call on, call on, call the cops on these criminals. They, they couldn't see that I was the victim that I was being punched and my wallets were taken out because my skin was like not black. They thought like I couldn't possibly be oppressed. They thought I don't deserve justice. And these women who were clearly punching me and committing crime, they cannot be responsible for their actions. And I was the one racist because I was trying to call the police on these criminals. And that's when I thought, Wow, this is the madness of crowd. We've really gone down this path so long that people lost like ability to think critically. That's what North Koreans lost in the last stage, right? Where how can you fight to be free if you don't know you're a slave? And That's North right. Korean people went to that stage where they have no idea they're oppressed. They have no idea they're brainwashed. And they have no idea that Kims are the liars. And now in America, we are in the stage where people losing critical thinking that we are, men cannot be a woman, clearly not, if you know how to think critically, but they believe it. They believe the most absurd thing, that men can be a woman. And that's the thing, like, that's how far we went in this direction of madness. Our friend Jesse Kelly, who was on this show uh, the other day, he's written a new book called The Anti-Communist Manifesto, talking about American communism. And one of the points that he makes brilliantly, I think, is that the original communist theory had the workers pitted against the proletariat, class war. But as he points out, uh, the American communists and actually the global communists too realized it wasn't going to work in the U.S. because mm-hmm. we're an aspirational society. We've got a free market economic system. And so how do you divide the population best in America to pit everybody against each other? Race. So they mm-hmm. settled on the race wedge right. to divide everybody. And so your experience in Chicago points to that. I mean, that this is what 
the 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 divide and conquer here in the U.S. is all about not about mm-hmm. the class system, but about race and gender. And now you have the transgender uh, mm-hmm. agenda going on as well. It's about confusing the population, keeping them off balance and keeping them divided and at each other's throats. So you're not paying attention to what they are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're so busy fighting each other. We have no idea that our border is in crisis. The nation is a mess. Our debt is increasing. Our economy is a mess. We have no idea. Like we don't even talk about the crime, anything that is that is really matters. Like all we are doing is fighting this nonsense to each other. And that's how governments rule. They divide people. They turn against each other. And that's a perfect climate for the dictators to rise. Yes, and they know it, and they create the environment for the dictator mm-hmm. and the the communist regime to arise. In our final moments with you, uh, you know mm-hmm. me, how do we stop this before it's truly too late? I mean, the hour is very late in America as it is, but how can we stop this? What can the average American do? I think it's that we really start with self-government. <laughs> I think that's the beauty of America, that we all have a self-responsibility of telling the truth, fight for the truth. And of course, electing the right, you know, picking the right politicians and going, serving your own community. And do not, I think it's a thing, it's it's really scary in America, even though if you stand up against this uh, political correctness, you might not get executed, but you still can lose your livelihood. You still yes. can lose your character. And when I stood up against this political correctness, literally the New York Times, the Washington Post wrote hideous, the peepees on me to character assassinate me. This is what North Korea uses. So right now, still with that, we have hope because we are not in North Korea yet. And I really hope that defending truth, defending freedom of speech and defending America is worth it. And we just, it starts from small act that we educate our children. We make sure that our children not thinking that America is evil and this country deserves to be destroyed. And it starts from education and teaching our children the right values. And then in community at workplaces, we start speaking for the truth and not fear this mob. And one day when we all speak up, and I think, then what, what can they do? They, they cannot get rid of all of us, right? That That is right. Although I'm sure that they would like to, like every communist right. dictatorship, they would certainly like to. And I'm glad you raised what the New York Times and the Washington Post and other state-run propaganda outlets uh, tried to do to you. They tried to discredit you. Uh, they criticized you. They attacked you. They said your stories from North Korea were embellished. They did everything they could to marginalize you. And you said, no, I'm not going to play this game. You are not going to cancel me. You're not going to do the American version of the execution squad in North Korea on me. I didn't go through all of this to have some some loser at the Washington Post canceled me and my message about communism and silence me. So that that takes enormous courage, you know me. And I, I guess after being through what you've been through, some little writer at the New York Times <laughs> with a pen is nothing compared to what you've been up against. Um, final question for you. What is mm-hmm. the one thing you want every American to know about where we are in this country and where we're headed if we don't stop this? 
I think it's a it's, it's a spectrum, right? Some people think that oh, it's a pendulum swing. It will go forth that way and then come back here. It's not go back and forth. And we still in the democracy, there's checks and balances. But the thing is, progress doesn't happen just naturally. <laughs> It only happens there are a lot of people work very hard to fight for that justice and righteousness. And like America, this country was not just founded by some people just miraculously. There are so many sacrifices and determination that our founders had. And just like that, I think our future, the American future, is going to be determined how much work that we're going to put in for the future of our country. It's not just going to be naturally going to get better. As you can see, things can deteriorate so fast right in front of our eyes. I live in New York City. I do not recognize this city. Before the pandemic, this was a completely different city. Now, when I take a subway, public transportation system in New York City, I literally risk my life every single time. How is that possible? Right. So I think do not take the progress for granted. Do not take freedom and safety for granted, even the abundance that I live in America right now. I see everything is getting worse. I I can't even exaggerate how I feel. I only came here like eight years ago and I can see that America eight years ago was a different place. So if we do nothing to fight for the better future, this country is only going to get deteriorated just like North Korea. So don't take the progress for granted and work for the future that you want for yourself and your children. That is an absolutely powerful and beautiful message. And, you know, we've laid out a pretty dark vision for the U.S. here, but we need to know what the reality is so we can turn this around. And guys, we need to hear from people like you know me who can share their stories as warnings to us all and as motivators to all of us to take action before it's really too late and America is truly gone for good. You know me, I want to thank you so much for being here, for sharing your experience and your invaluable uh, warning to us as a country. Um, your, your voice needs to be heard by everyone, and that's why I wanted to have you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You know me, Park. Check out her new book. It's called While Time Remains. And check out her YouTube channel, Voice of North Korea, the great You Know Me Park. Well, what a huge show today, guys, right? Um, I'm so glad that you're here, as always. And I really appreciate you telling everybody you know about the Monica Crowley podcast, your friends, your family, your colleagues, your garbage man. Okay, your your bus driver, a anybody and everybody should be listening to the show. So I appreciate you spreading the word. Word of mouth is how we get it done, right? And how we're going to save this country. So thank you for being here and for checking out our great sponsors. Have a phenomenal weekend, and I will see you right back here next week. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Bahakel Entertainment, LLC.